Turn your Bibles, if you will, tonight to Hebrews chapter 11. You've been with us, uh, well, we've been doing this for a long time. I don't know how long we've been going, but we've been going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, and uh, we have made it to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is one of the toughest uh, chapters for me um, because it identifies 19 different people and 35 different acts of faith that the Holy Spirit considered to be important enough to to call to remembrance and, and draw our attention to. Each one of them would take, would uh, deserves its own service. Uh, so you could very well see that we can't do that. Uh, we can't afford another 35 weeks just in chapter 11. Um, I don't think I could survive that with the audio group. But um, after a tape series gets to be 50, you know, that they consider that unsellable. But anyway... Um, there are some really, really important things that uh, that Paul, who I may have said this before, but I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. Um, Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to write some things that uh, that we generally, we're pretty familiar with the, the 11th chapter of Hebrews, probably as much or more so than any of the other uh, chapters in, in the letter. And um, as such, we are guilty, and I'm, I certainly plead guilty to this, We'll pull out different scriptures and we'll use that, particularly like verse 1 and verse uh, uh, 6, where we'll talk about the subject of faith and, and so forth. But Paul is, uh, is writing a letter and he's using some of our favorite verses, the ones that we pull out and, and use for our own subjects and, and for our own purposes. He uses those to uh, confirm the things that he said before and to further convince the, uh, the Jews that he's writing to of, uh, of the truth of the things that he's said so far. So it's, uh, it's kind of a difficult chapter in, in that regard. How much time do you spend with it? What do you, what do, you do regarding uh, the, um, the 11th chapter of Hebrews? Um, I'm going to get a running start in it if I can. By that I mean uh, back up to chapter 10. Because the 11th chapter is, uh, is not a standalone chapter. It's something that Paul is writing in uh, explanation uh, to something he said previously. Starting in chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, he said, But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, that means saved, where you came to the knowledge of Jesus. You endured a great fight of afflictions. In other words, there was a situation that they, they um, an attitude that they had in the early days of their Christian, Christian experience that they've lost. And that's what he's doing. He's telling them, now remember what it used to be like. Remember how you started. Now we've got more information about how the church in Jerusalem started in, uh, in the book of Acts than we do anybody else. We know that there was a great uh, outpouring of signs and wonders and miracles. We know that, uh, that the church grew um, by leaps and bounds. Uh, 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 5,000 people were saved in Acts chapter 3 when the man at the beautiful gate was healed. So it's an instant giant church. And there were a lot of things that, uh, that they did. They continued to, uh, in the doctrine of the apostles and breaking bread and, uh, and fellowship with one another and things like that. We also see some mistakes that they made. We saw some people, in, like for example in Acts chapter 5, where um, Ananias and Sapphira tried to usurp a position that wasn't theirs, and they fell dead in church. Um, you know, I would imagine that would kill most churches if something like that were to happen today. It certainly affected attendance, but it didn't in Jerusalem. 
they continued. As a matter of fact, they got stronger and stronger as a result of these things. People recognized that this was the power of God. They recognized that this was God protecting his church, his people. And so he's, he's trying to remind them of things that they experienced and experiences that they had earlier in their Christian life. So he says, call to remembrance the former days. At the first, in other words, in which you were enlightened or illuminated uh, when you first were saved, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. In other words, he's saying, remember that in the beginning, some of you folks were, were brought out in public and insulted and made a, a public laughing stock of, and others of you, just by association, you were persecuted along with them, not because you were singled out for anything that you did, you were just one of the group. But either way, it was tough times. For you had compassion on me and my bonds. I've said this before, but I'll, uh, I'll repeat it. The author understood that they knew who he was. You had compassion on me and my bonds. We have an example in, uh, uh, in Acts chapter, uh, what is it, Acts chapter 21, I think it is, where, uh, where Paul was in bonds there, so it's more than likely him. But it says, you had compassion on me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Now, those are two different things. Uh, again, this is a verse of Scripture that's pulled out and used for offerings. How that the people were willing to spoil their own goods. In other words, give of what they had to help Paul when he was in prison. That's not what he's saying. Now, that we know that's true with other churches. But the church of Jerusalem was not known as a giving church. Everybody else is giving to them because they're in such a mess. All the other churches are, are trying to gather up an offering for Paul and his company to take with them when they go back to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is in such an impoverished and persecuted condition. Now, what he does say and what he is saying here tells us a little bit about what they experienced. He said, you had compassion on me in my bonds and, separate issue, took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. The word spoiling literally means seizure. He said, you guys didn't even complain when the government took away all your stuff. Ouch. I don't want the government taking away my stuff. They're taking away too much now. Seems like every day they talk about taking away more. Now they want my guns. I don't want them to have my guns. What do you do? Paul says, you took joyfully the spoiling or seizure of your goods, knowing in yourselves. Now, folks, this is going to have a lot to do with chapter 11, so I want you to pay attention to this phrase. Knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. He's saying this very specifically. He's saying this was your attitude in the beginning. Why has it changed? In the beginning, when things went against you, when they pulled you out and made a public public spectacle of you, You didn't try to resist that because you saw something greater than what was going on around you. When you saw them put me in jail, you had compassion on me. You felt for me because of the the afflictions that I was enduring, the persecutions that were coming against me. You don't seem to be, apparently Paul is saying, you don't seem to have that same attitude about people now. Then he says, and when they took away your stuff, you didn't riot. You didn't protest in the streets. You took joyfully that seizure of your possessions because you knew you had something better. 
In other words, what he's saying, and this is a theme that you're going to see in chapter 11, he's saying, you set your affection on things that were above. Colossians chapter 1, if you be, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, if you been, then be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above and not on things here on the earth. He's saying that was their condition to begin with. In the early days, that's what they were like. Knowing that they had in heaven a better and a more enduring substance. In other words, they recognized that they had heavenly things that were a lot better than the stuff that that was seized or taken away from them down here. They had the prize on on heaven and heaven's goods. Verse 35, here's the encouragement. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Folks, receiving the promise always comes as a result of doing the will of God. Receiving the promise does not come because God just takes a liking to you one day. It comes as a result of doing the will of God. A lot of people are trying to get the promise and they've never done the will of God. They're trying to get God's blessing without ever having stepped out And accepted by faith what the Bible says to be true or acted on the word. Forget a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. He's talking about Jesus coming back. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Notice verse 38. He's saying verse 38 is the equivalent of verse 35. He's saying, casting not away your confidence is the just living by faith. His encouragement is, cast not away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. You'll come out on top if you don't cast away your confidence. If you don't lose that assurance that you started off with, if you go back and remember how things were in the beginning. Now, we've all got experiences and testimonies in our own life that encourage us when we run into trouble now, don't we? We can look back at previous faith victories as encouragement for us today when the devil attacks us again, whether it's in the same area or in a different area. That's what he's saying. He's saying don't let go of your confidence. Just because you're in a tough place now, you've been in tough places before and God's delivered you. Cast not away your confidence. And that's the equivalent of verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. That's why we don't want to cast away our confidence because the just shall live by faith. In other words, he's saying faith is the key. That's why chapter 11 is all about faith. He's saying this is the key. The key is faith. Don't cast away your confidence. Live by faith. Chapter 11 is the life of faith. So he starts off in verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The word now, again, here's a verse that we pull out of context and we'll say, now faith is now. Hope is in the future, but faith is now. That's true. And you can use this to support that argument. But that's not what Paul's saying. Now means so then. Because he's just said, now that he's just said, the just shall live by faith. So he's saying, so then, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Now, folks, everything about chapter 11 is going to be not seen. Everything that he's trying to teach from chapter 11 is all about not seen. It's all about what you see. It's all about what you don't see. Everything about chapter 11 is the seen versus the unseen. That's why verse 1 is so important. That's why it ties together the things that he's been telling them. Because he's trying to encourage them to get back to the place where they live by faith. Just like he said, call to remembrance the former days and the afflictions that you endured and how God brought you through them. Now he's going to remind them of things that they know in their heritage. 
of their Jewish heritage, how God operated to bring deliverance in impossible situations. So he's saying, so then faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Now, you know as well as I know that we could stop here just on this one verse and preach forever on the subject of faith. I have no shortage of things that I could tell you on the subject of faith. But if I do that, we'll never get through the book of Hebrews. So whereas Paul is trying to encourage them in faith, and we may make some comments, some general comments about it, I don't want to stop and preach a message on faith. It would certainly be appropriate to do here. But there's, I want to look, I want to back up and take a bigger picture look at this. So where he says, so then faith is the substance of things hoped for. The word substance literally means title deed. It's the title deed for the things you hope for. It's the evidence of things you're not seeing. What things not seen? What do you need a title deed for something if it belongs to you? Why do you need, if God has promised something to you, why do you need a title deed for it? Because you can't see it. And the things that we can't see discourage us because we can't see them. So we have to have something to hold on to because we can't see the things that are promised to us. If healing is promised to you, and it is, healing is part of what's promised to us through the redemptive work of Jesus. But you can't see healing. And you can look at your body, your body may be sick. So how are you going to get past the sickness that you can see to the healing you can't see? You've got to have a title deed to it. You've got to have something that proves that it's yours. The Bible says that something is faith. Faith is the substance. It's the title deed for the thing that you can't see that belongs to you. It's really yours. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to hold fast our faith. Hold fast our faith in that which God has promised. That's what he's saying. Why? Because the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says... For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. This, uh, this word, good report, or the two words, good report, literally means witness. It's the same word translated witness over in verse 4. It means approval. For by faith, the elders, he's talking about, he's going to identify who the elders are, but just as a general, uh, in a general sense, he's talking about all those patriarchs, all those uh, the he, people that make the hero hall of fame here of faith in chapter 11, all of those gained approval of God by faith. Both folks, it's faith that brings approval from God. Verse 3, he says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. He's saying the things that we can see were made of things that we can't see. That's why it's so important for us to be aware of what we can't see. That's why it's so important for us to have a title deed to what we can't see because what we can't see is more important than what we can see. Now, from this point on, starting with verse 4, he's going to talk about works. He's going to talk about what everybody did. Let me give you the list real quick. Verse 4, Abel offered a sacrifice. Verse 5, Enoch was translated. Verse 7, Noah prepared an ark. Verse 8, Abraham obeyed and went out. Verse 9, Abraham sojourned. Verse 10, Abraham looked for a city. Verse 11, Sarah received strength to conceive. 
Verse 17, Abraham offered up Isaac. Verse 20, Isaac blessed Esau, uh, Jacob and Esau. Verse 21, Jacob blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons. Verse 22, Joseph remembered Israel's deliverance. Verse 23, Moses was hid three months by his parents. Verse 24, Moses refused Pharaoh's heritage. Verse 25, Moses chose to suffer. Verse 26, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ. Verse 27, Moses forsook Egypt. Verse 28, Moses kept the Passover. Verse 29, Moses and Israel passed through the Red Sea. Verse 30, Joshua felled the walls of Jericho. Verse 31, Rahab perished not. Folks, every one of those things is what somebody did. Now let me give you a little church history. Martin Luther... Well, uh, let me, uh, I, I need to set the stage a little bit. Here's a problem that a lot of people have when the Bible talks about works. From the beginning, the Bible tells us, well, I've got about a million things I want to say and I've got time to say a hundred of them. Let me start like this. Maybe this is a better way to come at it, better way to approach it. So many people try to spend the time, spend so much time and so much effort proving the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant that they disparage the old covenant. Paul doesn't do that. Paul recognized that both the old covenant and the new covenant were both given by God. Well, if the old covenant was given by God, there can't be anything wrong with it. God doesn't give you anything that's broken. That should be good news when you think about you. If it's from God, it's got to be perfect. Well, the old covenant was from God. And consequently, a lot of people will take the new covenant and talk about the, the excellency of Jesus and the greatness of his sacrifice and the grace of the Lord and all that kind of stuff. And they'll, they'll contrast that with the old covenant. They'll say, well, God's a God of grace. But in the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath. And a God of judgment. Well, folks, the Bible says God doesn't change. So if God was a God of wrath and a God of judgment in the Old Covenant, guess who he is now? He's still the same God of wrath. He's still the same God of judgment. Now, the reverse of that's true, too. If God's a God of mercy and a God of grace today, what was he under the Old Covenant? He was the same merciful God under the Old Covenant. He was the same God of grace under the Old Covenant. But so many times people look at the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They look at the law versus grace. And it's the same argument today. It's been going on forever. Martin Luther was one of the biggest ones to start it. I don't, I don't know if start it is the, is the appropriate term. But he was early on. It's been raging ever since. Martin Luther, well, turn with me over to, uh, to James chapter 2. Let me show you something that, uh, that Martin Luther had a real problem with. James chapter 2. Just a couple of pages over. Let's start reading in verse 17. It says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Now, the word works is the word corresponding actions. If faith doesn't produce actions, it's dead because it's alone. It doesn't say it's not faith. It just says it's dead. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's making the point, very simply. James, pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Now, the book of James was written, uh, is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. It may be the first one. It's written about 45 A.D. 
So it's about 20 years before the, the book of Hebrews was written. And James is very simply saying, so you're saved. Big deal. Sitting around saying you're saved doesn't do any good for anybody. Well, wait a minute. Isn't being saved a good thing? Sure. And he's writing to people that are saved. Being saved is a good thing. You know why? Because it justifies you before God. But your justification before God does nothing as far as the world is concerned. The world couldn't care less that I'm saved or you either. And if we don't do something because we're saved that blesses or helps or benefits them in some way, who cares? That's James' point. So you're saved. Big deal. He goes further and says, Thou believest that, thou, that there is one God, verse 19, Thou doest well, but the devils also believe and they tremble. In other words, you're believing in God. If that's as far as it goes, that just puts you on par with the devil. The devil knows there's a God. So what's the big deal about you being saved? He's talking about the church's interaction with and presentation to the world. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? The word vain means empty. Why is he saying that they're empty? Because they're empty of the word. They're saved, but they're empty of the word. James is making a distinction between saving faith and living faith. Can you see that? And folks, there is a difference between saving faith and living faith. Everybody has saving faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Everybody has the capacity, the ability, the potential to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's a gift given from God. Then the Bible says when we're born again, he puts the measure of faith on the inside of every one of us. Now, the gift of God to be saved, the faith that will enable any uh, any person on the earth to be saved is saving faith. The measure of faith that comes when you're saved is living faith. There's a big difference between those two. Paul's saying, the, um, uh, I'm sorry, James is writing to the church in Jerusalem. Writing to, well, not just the church in Jerusalem, but he's writing to the Jews that are scattered around. They're already undergoing persecution in about 45 AD. So he's writing to them. He's saying, it doesn't do you any good to be saved. If that's all there is, what good does that do as far as the world is concerned? It does a lot of good for them as far as eternity is concerned. But what good does it do for the world? He says, that's why he's talking about people that are empty. He says, wilt thou know, O vain or empty of the word man, that faith that doesn't produce works or corresponding actions is dead. Now notice verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? The word, uh, the phrase made perfect literally means fully developed. By his works, his faith was fully developed. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. And he was called the friend of God. Keep that in mind. You're going to see that again. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified. Now, it doesn't mean made right with God. He means approved of God. He's not talking about by uh, works a man is saved. 
He's saying by works, because he's not talking about saving faith. He's talking about living faith. He's saying it's by it that the elders obtained approval from God. Hebrews 11.2. By faith, a man is justified or approved of God. Can you see it? And not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out the other way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so, uh, so faith without works is dead also. Martin Luther hated the book of James. He said it was an epistle that had a foundation of straw. I'm not aware that he ever went so far as to say that it wasn't inspired by the Holy Ghost. But if he had his choice, he'd have torn it out of the Bible. Because, see, his whole thing is man is justified by faith. Let me show you where he saw the contradiction. Luther's favorite, cha- favorite uh, book of the Bible was Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Now you may think I've forgotten about Hebrews, but I haven't. But if you don't understand some of these things, then it won't make sense to you what the Hebrews is going to tell us and how it applies. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory. He'd have something to glory about, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. That's Genesis fifteen six. That's the same thing James said. Now Paul said he got there by faith. James said he got there by works. It's like a contradiction, doesn't it? It's not. And here's why it's not. Look back with me to chapter 1 of Romans. Notice what Paul is saying. Verse 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel, is the power of God. The word of God is the power of God. You want to see the power of God in your life? Find the word that applies to your situation. And if you don't apply the word in your situation, don't expect to see the power of God. That's living faith. Not saving faith, living faith. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the word of God, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. What does he mean? The first faith is saving faith. The second faith is living faith. The righteousness of God is revealed through the word from faith to faith. How do you get saved? By the word. How do you live by faith? By the word. You get saved by believing in Jesus. You live by faith by believing in the word. Now, Jesus is the word made flesh. So it's all the same thing in one sense. But specifically, the object of your faith changes between saving faith and living faith. Jesus is the object of saving faith. We believe that Jesus went to the cross. We believe that God raised him from the dead. We believe that he has been risen and seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that's why we confess him as Lord. That's saving faith. Jesus is the object, object of our faith to get saved. But once we're saved, what do we put our faith in? You don't have to keep your faith in Jesus being, being risen from the dead, folks, to be saved. You were saved because you did believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. You don't have to keep confessing, I believe Jesus is alive. I believe Jesus is alive. I believe Jesus is alive to, to, keep sa- to stay saved. It's not the way it works. 
Well, then what do you put your faith in once you are saved? What kind of object does living faith have? Whatever the word says is yours. See the difference? Okay, back to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is all about living faith. He's writing to people that are saved. He's not talking to them about saving faith. He's talking to them about living faith. So what does he talk about? He talks about the works of these heroes. He talks about the actions that these people took because they believed in God. Can you see that? That's why Hebrews 11 is all about works. That's why your life should be all about works. Turn with me over to, um, I want you to see something here. We're going to come back to Hebrews chapter 11, but turn with me over to Revelation chapter 20. Folks, I got to tell you, this is one of those uh, passages of Scripture, one of these verses of Scripture that just jumped off the page at me several years ago. I'd read it in just normal study in the book of Revelation and that kind of stuff, but honest to goodness, I read through this, and, and I, I don't know how many times I've read it before. I don't know how many times I've read the book of Revelation. It's got to be dozens. I, I don't know. I, I don't spend all my time there, but I'm interested in it. So I, I, you know, I read it some from time to time at least, at least once a year. But I read through there, and this verse of Scripture just absolutely jumped off of me, and it had nothing to do with the end times. It was something that God talked to me about. Let me show you what this says. Revelation chapter 20 in verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books, plural, books, were opened. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. So, folks, the book of life is one of many books. Right? That's what it's saying. The books were opened. One of them was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. Not the book of life, the other books. The dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Do you know what the Bible is telling us? The Bible is telling us that there are books of works that God keeps. Do you know what Hebrews chapter 11 is a sampling of? One of God's book of works. here's what that means. There are many different worldviews. People have all different ideas about why the world has evolved, developed, whatever term you want to use, into the, into the way that it is. There are different ideas about why uh, America became the land that it is. There are different ideas about why people live in certain geographic locations as opposed to others. For example, uh, there's an idea that, that people always migrate to rivers. There's another idea that people always migrate to, uh, to coastal areas. There's another idea that people migrate according to uh, weather patterns, according to, to ethnic groupings and stuff like that. All different kinds of ideas that people have about how history is made. A lot of times people are looking nowadays at the, the, uh, the makers of history as being politicians, presidents, and so forth. The people, most of the people I would assume, most of the people in America would say that the history makers in our country are the president and the Congress. The Bible is saying that's not true. The Bible is very simply saying in verse 3, Hebrews 11, verse 3, notice this. It says, through faith we understand 
And folks, it's only through faith that you're going to have this understanding. In other words, it's saying, here's God's worldview. The way you can find and identify God's worldview is through faith. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now, folks, that means two things. Number one, we know that it means the world was created by the spoken word. A lot of questions in science and and, uh, evolutionary theory and all different kinds of things about how the world was made and how the world developed and how everything got here. There's different ideas about the something crawling up out of the primordial ooze and, you know, then it became something else and then it became something else, finally became a monkey and then many years later it became a man. Well, if that's true, why do we still have monkeys? Seems like if evolution was the deal, it would have evolved past that. And there's all kinds of different ideas and there are all kinds of different, you know, big bang theory. You know, some people have this, this idea that there was this big bang and all of a sudden everything was. Wow. Who knew that an explosion could create the laws of physics? Science and man comes up with their own ideas about stuff and they, they, a lot of, most of them seem stupid to me. There may be an element of truth in some of the stuff that they say, but most of it seems like, you know, you just have to wonder, you're the educated people? But the reason I think that way is because I look at things through the eyes of faith. I believe God's word to be true. Well, if God's word is true, then the Genesis account of creation is an eyewitness account because God was the only one there. And the Bible tells us that God looked into the darkness and said, let there be light. The Bible tells us that God created the worlds with or by faith, by the spoken word. So we know that to be true. By faith. Science doesn't know that to be true. The world doesn't know that to be true. But we know that to be true through or by faith. Okay? Are you with me? Do you understand the way I'm saying this? By faith, we have understanding about how the worlds were made. But this word world does not mean universe. It does not mean planet. It means ages. Through faith, we understand that the worlds, the ages, the time periods... We're framed. The word frame means arranged by the word of God. Now, I'm going to remind you of a scripture that we started off with in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Because when Paul starts this thing off, rather than saying, hey, it's Paul and I'm writing to you, he starts off right off the bat. And the reason he starts off this way is because the Jews were all about dispensations. They were all about time periods. That's why the law was such a big deal to them, because there was an age of the law. Before the age of the law, there was no, there was no form, there was no ritual for them to follow. They had nothing that they could grab hold of that said, this is God. That's why Abraham, um, oh, what's his name? Moses. That's why Moses, when he was talking to God, God said, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Moses said, who are you? How's he going to know? There was no way before that that God was really talking to mankind. There was no way that God had really identified himself for hundreds of years. So when God speaks to Moses, even though he's talking out of a burning bush, he's showing his power. He says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and and tell him to let my people go. Moses says, I don't know you. So how's mankind going to know God? Then when the law came along, the Jews had something they could grab hold of. They had something they could finally see. They had something they could finally do. And so the dispensation of the law was everything to them. And that's why they're being so tempted to go back to it. So Paul starts off. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Hebrews, he said, God, who at sundry times, that means different time periods or ages or dispensations, and in diverse manners or ways, spoke in time past unto the prophets, 
unto the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his son. First thing he says is, there are different time periods, different ways for God to speak, but the way that he speaks now is through his son. Now he's talking about time periods again. Hebrews 11. Through faith, verse 3, we understand that the worlds were framed or arranged by the word of God. What's he saying? He's saying God created the time periods. Now, folks, everything about these heroes of faith fall into different time periods. You've got people in the time periods, uh, the dispensation of conscience with Abel and Enoch and Noah. You've got people in the age of um, promise, Abraham and Sarah. You've got people in the, in the time period of the dispensation of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, and uh, Jacob. They're all listed there. You've got people in the time period of the law, the dispensation of the law. Most of them are falling into the dispensation of the law. And God talked to every one of them in different ways, but God's the one that framed every time period. And every time period was started by God and ended by man. The age of innocence was the first time period. It was the first dispensation. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God started it by creating it. Adam ended it by disobeying God. You had the age of conscience that came next. That's where you have Cain and Abel. You have all kinds of different things. It started with what God had to initiate after Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, and it ended with the Tower of Babel where man messed up. After that, it was the dispensation of human government. After that came the dispensation of promise. God started the dispensation of promise by finding Abraham. The dispensation of promise ended with the birth of Isaac. Man's action, not always mistakes, but there were actions taken by man that ended dispensations. The next dispensation with Isaac's birth was the age of the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Jacob died, that was the end of the the, uh, uh, dispensation of the patriarchs. Then comes along the dispensation of the law. Moses is the next one that we find God speaking to. And the law carried until Jesus was born. God is the one that framed by the word of God every one of those time periods. And there's an example of a hero of faith of every one of those time periods. With the exception of conscience, that's Adam in the Garden of Eden. Wouldn't need one there. And human government, which was basically man on his own until the flood. That's when God stepped in and and started, wiped everything out and started all over. Every other time period, there's an example of a hero of faith. What is Paul trying to identify? He's trying to show that since God is the same, every one of those dispensations was dependent on faith in God's word. God hadn't changed, folks. God demanded faith of Abel and Cain. Got it from one of them, didn't get it from the other. Just like God demands faith of you and me. Same faith based on the same word of God. That's why faith is the reason for Hebrews 11. It's the thread that runs in through every one of these dispensations. So that's what it's talking about in chapter 11 verse 3. Through faith we understand that the world's ages were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen are not made of things, were not made of things which do appear. Here's what that means. 
That means the president and Congress are not the history makers. You know who the history makers? The people that are living by faith. President Obama thinks that he's transforming America. Well, he is. But you know why he is? Because of what the Word says the world will be like before Jesus comes. He thinks it's all his doing. Bless us, poor silly fool's heart. Revelation 20, verse 12. Everybody will stand before the Lord, small and great. What makes the difference in small and great? There's no difference in God's eyes. The difference is in how people see themselves. And everybody stands before the Lord, and the books of works are going to be open for everybody. Every one of these people that are identified in Hebrews chapter 11 became a world shaper because of their faith, an act of faith, a specific act of faith. In many cases, it was the pinnacle of their faith the pinnacle of their life of faith. It doesn't say these people were men or women of faith. It tells about their actions or their works of faith. And every one of those that are identified brings approval from God on their behalf. (laughs) Well, maybe I'll get through verse 3. I want you to see a couple of things. Let me see if I can get through verse 6 real quick. Verse 4, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness or approval. Here's the same word that's translated good report in verse 2. By which he obtained approval that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. It's saying his action of faith made a name for him. You ever notice how politicians want to name bridges and, and buildings and all that stuff after themselves? What are they doing? They're trying to leave a heritage. You know what the Bible says your heritage is? Your works of faith. Let me read to you what the Bible says about Abel. Verse chapter Genesis chapter 4 verse uh, 3. Cain and Abel have both been born now. And it says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Verse 4, And Abel also, he also brought of the firstlings of his flocks and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. What does it tell us about Abel? It tells us that Abel brought an animal sacrifice and the fat thereof. The fat thereof doesn't mean that he took the finest sheep he he had grown or raised and paraded that up before God. It means he had already killed the animal, made the sacrifice, and brought the fat as a burnt offering. What does that mean? It tells us very specifically that Abel's sacrifice was one that he recognized the justice of God. He recognized the penalty of sin had to be death. He recognized that God's graciousness allowed him to escape that death by following the principles of the sacrifice. Not Cain. Cain grew corn, brought corn. It had nothing to do with Cain being a farmer and Abel being a rancher. Because God has no respect of persons. 
God's not going to respect somebody that does one thing opposed to somebody that does something else. You might think that Abel had an advantage because he's already growing animals. Nope. Because if he brought the same sacrifice, had the same attitude toward the sacrifice as, as uh, what's his name, Cain, then that would have just simply mean that Abel would have brought a lamb on a leash and tied it up to a stake before the altar and said, okay, God, there you go. The problem was not what Cain brought. The problem was his attitude or his disrespect of to the justice of God and the, the requirement for the sacrifice, requirement for the shedding of blood so that the price for sin could be paid. That's what caused Abel's excellent sacrifice. He recognized this is what it's all about. Now, let me show you something else. The next one it says is by faith Enoch. Uh, verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Genesis chapter 5. Here's all it tells us about Enoch. Verse 19, and Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. Verse 21, and Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, and Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. We don't even have enough information to know that he was a hero of faith. Except that it tells us that he walked with God. It tells us of his relationship with God. And that relationship with God was enough with the little that we have information about for him to be a hero in the hall of fame. That brings us to verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. It's not talking about saving faith. Certainly God is displeased when any person goes to hell because Jesus died for their salvation. But it's not talking about saving faith. He's talking to people that are already saved. He's saying the only way you can gain God's approval is through actions of faith. In other words, God's not pleased for somebody to get saved and never do anything with it. Doesn't say he sends them to hell. It says he's not pleased. It's saying that person doesn't gain approval. Paul talked about to Timothy about gaining approval. He said, study to show yourself approved unto God. Well, why? In the, if God's such a God of grace, why should we have to gain approval from God? Because you can't please him without faith. And what greater measure of faith is there than studying the word? You're equipping yourself so that you can take action. But without faith... It's impossible to please God. Do you realize that everything you do by faith gains approval of God? Rather than looking on the negative, oh, no, God's unhappy with me. Forget that. Live the word. I mean, how hard can it be? It's a simple thing to do. It just takes a decision. It's just an act of your will. It's easier to live by the word than it is to live contrary to the word, folks, because the benefits of living by the word outweigh the results of not living by the word. That takes a little while to get on track. I get that. Took me a while too. But it's so much better. Who, nobody that lives by the word would even think of going back. That means when you make the determination to live by the word, everything you do approves God. It gains you approval of God. 
rather than waking up in the morning and saying, boy, I hope God's on my side today. Are you kidding? All you've got to do is take a step of faith. You get out of bed in faith, folks. You can do everything in faith. Before you eat breakfast, thank God for it. That's an action of faith. It gains his approval. Everything you do that's based on the word gains approval of God. You can live under the fountain of God's approval simply by doing the word to the best of your ability. Well, what if we mess up, Pastor Mike? That's where 1 John 1, 9 comes in. You can get back under the fountain of God's approval by saying, Father, forgive me, I messed up. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. Why? Now, remember, he's talking about two guys before Abraham. He's talking about two guys in the, in the dispensation of conscience. And these guys found the grace of God. These guys found approval, the favor of God. Before there ever was such a thing as the law. Abraham found the grace of God. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He was before the law. David found the grace of God even after killing Uriah and committing adultery with his wife. He still found the grace of God. Folks, God's grace, therefore God's faith, has never changed. The requirement of faith has never changed because faith and, faith and grace go hand in hand. If faith has always been the requirement, then that means grace has always been available. It doesn't matter what dispensation. Faith is the common thread. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe two things. Must believe, number one, that he is. How are you ever going to believe God is? Well, you can't unless you know the word. Because if you don't know what the word says God is, you can't believe he is. Everything about the word is to reveal who he is. So that you can believe him. You find out from the word that he's the healer. Do you, folks, do you realize that if we took this to its, to its logical conclusion, if the Bible says Jesus is the healer, that means without faith in Jesus being the healer, it's impossible to please God. If you find out that the Bible says that God will meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, that without believing God is the supplier of your needs, it's impossible to please God. If you find out that God is your peace, then it's impossible to please God unless you believe that he's the God of your peace. Do you see why it's important to know the word? How are you going to know what to believe he is without the knowledge of the word? For he that cometh to God must believe, number one, that he is, and number two, that he's a rewarder. Everybody say rewarder. The word reward means to recompense. You know what recompense means? It means to pay up. Now, he's talking about pleasing God. He's saying it's impossible to please God unless two things, unless you come to God under two conditions. Number one, you have to believe that he is who he says he is. He is who the word tells you he is. Number two, you have to believe that he pays you for diligently seeking him. And how much of the church world says... That we're not supposed to expect God to do anything for us. Do you realize that that attitude, with that attitude, it's impossible to please God? According to Hebrews 
It's almost like if the devil was trying to keep people from walking in the fullness of, the, the, of everything Jesus provided for them, if he could just get, them, get the church to believe, number one, that the Bible doesn't really mean what it says and that God really won't do anything for his people. And I would submit to you that those are the two outstanding characteristics of fundamentalist Christianity in America. Well, you can't believe everything that the Bible says that God does and will do. And, you know, some of that's been done away with. Uh, That healing stuff, that doesn't work that way today. Oh, those name it and claim it people. The very idea to think that God's going to reward them or just pay their bills or just do whatever they confess that he's going to do. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must, didn't say it's a good idea. It said must believe. Number one, that he is. Number two, that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What does that mean? That means number one, he's able, and number two, he's willing. From this point, Paul is going to start going into example after example after example of actions of faith, works of faith, living faith. Now, here's the, here's the deal. Let me, let me finish with this. I really hope to get a lot further than what I did today. But he's going, uh, well, I'm going to cover this again. I'll have to cover this again. But skip down with me to verse 13. The ones that he talks about, up until verse 13, he said, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Remember I told you that seeing the seen things and the unseen things were the, were the dominant ideas, or at least one of the main ideas in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not receiving the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What does that mean? That means Abel saw the importance of the sacrifice. Now, he did not see in his natural life the more excellent sacrifice of Jesus, but he saw it afar off. That means Enoch saw heaven afar off he saw the sacrifice of jesus he saw the the relationship that you could have with god he didn't see that in his natural life he didn't even see it after he left the earth because he went to abraham's bosom but then when jesus led captivity captive at his resurrection then he saw it folks the point is very simply this every one of these guys is going to talk about things that they did not see things that they did not realize in their lives their natural earthly lives but it said that they took these actions that God wrote down in his book of works because of something they saw from the inside based on the word of God. That's what changes history. That's what changes the world that we live in. When we see from the word of God something on the inside and we refuse To take less than that. One of my favorite ones that's mentioned here is Joseph. It said, Joseph remembered Israel's deliverance. He saw from the inside God's promise of delivering Israel through Moses. Did he know it was Moses? Who knows? But he saw Israel being delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And so he saw from the inside something that he never saw in his lifetime. 
So what did he do? He gave commandment that when they leave, you take my bones with you. In other words, he lived based on what he saw inside, not based on what he realized outside. And that's what made these heroes of faith strangers and pilgrims. They recognized that they belonged to a different, a different land. They recognized that they're still journeying through this earth, but they don't belong here. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. You know why Abraham never built himself a house? Because he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. How is something he built down here going to compare to that? That's what this is talking about. It's talking again and again and again about how we're supposed to set our affection on heavenly things. We're supposed to live our lives based on the heavenly things we see from the inside. The the heavenly things that we see in the word. Not the natural things we see around us. And how many times do we fall into, oh, woe is me because of this circumstance or that circumstance. If you're going to be a hero of faith, you're going to have to look past the natural circumstance to the things that you see inside. What's your book of works going to look like? You may be thinking, I better get busy. I don't know. God intends it to be something to your good or for your good and something to your credit. Every one of us can have a book of works. It might be a pamphlet for some. might be a flyer for others. might be a blank page for some still. But we have an opportunity to make it a book. A multi-volume set. Just by living by the word. And that's what Paul's saying. And it's all to encourage them. Get back to where you once were. Don't get discouraged because things are tough. Now folks, what were things like in 65 AD? The Romans are bearing down. It wasn't like just all of a sudden they decided they'd show up and then destroy Jerusalem. They're bearing down more and more and more and more on the church. He said, I know it's tough. But remember when it was tough when you began. You remember how you kept your eyes on heavenly things? Go back to that. That's what your forefathers did. And look how God credits it to them. He'll do the same for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be doers thereof. We thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity for you to write a book of works for us as we live according to the things that we see from within and not just the things that we see around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.